Well, we're continuing this epic series in Matthew. Uh, we've reached chapter 27, the penultimate chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Um, I think this series has been going since pretty much the church began. Um, so well done for those of you who stuck with it. But we're in the chapter 27, and we're going to focus a little bit again on Judas. Um, it's not my choice for Father's Day, uh, especially as this is the passage where he commits suicide. It's not a Father's Day topic, is it? But we won't be dwelling uh, too much on that, I hope. But let me just go back and just read a couple of passages just to put things in context. Um, so Matthew 26, verse 14, says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And then going on in the same chapter to verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. And then chapter 27, verses 1 to 10. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. So, Judas. He's a perplexing character, isn't he? It's quite uh, uh, troubling to have to think about him. Uh, we're perplexed because we find it hard to understand. How could someone who knew Jesus so intimately, had been with him for three years, uh, eventually betray him? We're perplexed why he could do it for such a small reward, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, not a lot of money, actually, the price of a slave uh, at that time. And perhaps most of all, we're perplexed because we're just left with that nagging question, was Judas really a free agent in this? Or, or was there a sense in which he was born to do this thing, that it was somehow his destiny? So there's some big kind of questions, aren't there, at the, in the back of our minds about Judas? And in view of some of those challenges, um, some scholars and commentators have tried to present Judas in a kinder light. 
there are numerous theories, but um, perhaps they fall into one of three sort of main camps. There's one set of explanations views Judas as an honest patriot. That he, he came to the conclusion that Jesus was a danger to uh, the nation, rather like the religious leaders did. And so what Judas did, he did out of love for Israel. A foul act to be sure, but done for the right reasons, to avoid bringing the wrath of Rome down upon the nation. A another perspective sees Judas as a loyal but impatient disciple. He was completely confident in Jesus' ability to extricate himself from any situation. Judas had seen all the miracles. He knew what Jesus was capable of. And so by betraying Jesus, Judas was just trying to bring things to a head. He was, he was forcing the issue. He was putting Jesus into a situation where he would be forced to display his sovereign power. And then there are those who argue that Judas was wavering in his conviction that Jesus was the Messiah. Sometimes he thought yes, and other times not so sure. And the only way to find out was to have Jesus arrested. And if he was the Messiah, then his power would show itself. If not, he would be executed as an imposter and he'd get what he deserved. But the problem with these reconstructions is that none of them can be supported by the biblical evidence. The fact is, we know nothing about Judas from outside the Gospels, and what we do know isn't pleasant, and we have to face up to it. Uh, John says he was a thief. He had his hand in the collective purse. Um, Luke says Satan entered him. John records Jesus calling Judas a devil, and that it would be better if he'd not been born. So our starting point must be that kind of sober realization and acceptance of what the Bible says, that sadly Judas didn't make it. Uh, Judas is in hell. And so as we come to this account, we have to sort of keep that in the back of our minds. So in chapter 27, we're told that as soon as Jesus was condemned, uh, Judas was filled with remorse and he tried to return the money. Um, but since this takes place at the temple, uh, it's likely that this happened much later. This is probably after Jesus was crucified, in fact. Maybe he did realize too late that Jesus was who he claimed to be. We're never going to get inside the head of Judas, so we can only speculate. But whatever his reasons for betraying Ju Jesus, he knows that he's done wrong. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And the priests in the temple, they were supposed to be the people that you went to so that you could have your burden of sin lifted. But of course, they've got blood on their hands as well. They are guilty and they reject Judas. What is that to us? That's your responsibility. And it's that, that refusal um, to take back responsibility, that refusal to, to help, I think, that um, seals Judas's despair. And then it says he goes away and hanged himself. And then the attention switches to the priests, and their main concern is how can we maintain ritual purity? What are we going to do with this money? We can't put it in the temple treasury, so they use it to buy a burial ground to for, for foreigners. And Matthew quotes the Old Testament 
to, again, to highlight this theme of fulfillment. It's a pretty obscure reference, but it's basically uh, saying that for, for a Jew, unclean money um, was used for what would be an unclean site, a burial ground. But what I want to do is, is think about Judas um, and compare and contrast him with Peter. Because although this is probably a, an event that happens a little bit later, Matthew's put it here. And I think he's put it here because he wants us to contrast Judas with Peter. Both fail Jesus spectacularly. One denies him, one betrays him. One is restored and one isn't. So what lessons can we learn from Judas? And I think there are a couple of things. Firstly, it's the contrast between true and spurious faith. The contrast between true faith and spurious faith. Peter's faith is genuine. Judas's faith turns out to be fake. But here is one of the conundrums. Judas was chosen, wasn't he? He was one of the original 12 apostles. Peter says in Acts 1.17 that Judas was one of our number and shared in our ministry. He was sent out on mission with the rest. He prayed for people to be healed. He cast out demons. He preached the good news. Judas did all that. Uh, and when Jesus announced that one of them would betray him, no one said, oh yes, he means Judas, obviously. They all said, is it me? From the outside, you see, Judas looked like the genuine article. Now, we assume that his heart wasn't completely submitted because it, we know he was a thief, he was stealing. But whether they knew that at the time or only in retrospect, we don't know. The point is all the disciples had their flaws. And I guess the, the point to ponder here is that it is possible to give the appearance of genuine faith, even to be used by God, but not actually to be saved. Jesus himself um, talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. In uh, Matthew 7, the, these quite chilling words, really. If I can find them, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You can profess faith and give every indication of being a true believer and yet end up hearing those chilling words, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, you might know people uh, who have fallen away after professing faith. You might know someone and they will say, yes, I used to believe. I went to church every Sunday. But, but, dot, 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 you can finish the sentence. Um, I grew up. I got disillusioned with church. Someone hurt me. My prayers weren't answered. I met someone who didn't share my faith. All kinds of reasons why people turn their backs. 
throw in the towel. And Jesus indicated that there would be a mixed response to the gospel, didn't he, in the parable of the sower. In uh, Matthew chapter 13, we're not going to turn to it, but just to remind you about uh, this parable where the farmer sows seed, and that seed falls on four different types of ground. And in three cases, the seed comes to life. There is a response. But in only one, is there any lasting fruit? Yes, sure, some people never respond. Their hearts remain hard. Some do respond, but they give up when trouble or persecution comes and it gets hard. Others give up when other things take priority. The worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth. So Jesus is saying we should expect a mixed response. Uh, another key passage in sort of thinking about this whole topic is Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 4 to 6. Hebrews 6, verse 4. It says, It's impossible for those who've once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to the repentance. To their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, some think that this proves uh, that you can lose your salvation. Now, I wouldn't want to say that. But it, it certainly says it's possible to know the truth, to enjoy great blessing to serve fruitfully in ministry, and then to fall away. In fact, that could be describing Judas, in fact. So what then is the mark of authentic faith? How do we know if we'll be saved in the end? How do we know if we're genuine and not fake? Well, the only answer the New Testament gives is that if you are truly Christ's, you will persevere to the end. You will keep going. You will not turn your back. You will keep on believing. In Colossians 1.23, Paul says, Salvation is only complete if we continue in our faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That's why the letter to the Hebrews is so full of exhortation and encouragement not to give up, not to throw in the towel. It says things like, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. And let us not give up the habit of meeting together. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. those who fall away how do we explain that the parable of the sower leads us to expect it but but maybe uh, there's a there's a verse in 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 that possibly gets to the heart of the matter it says it, well it refers to people who went out from us but they did not really belong to us 
For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. How do you know your faith is genuine? You keep on believing the gospel. You persevere to the end. So don't give up. Yes, it's hard. No one said the Christian life would be easy. And if they did, they were lying to you. As Carl often says, it's a narrow path. It's a rocky road. That's the Christian life. It's a battle. You get knocked down again and again. But the true believer gets up again and again. We can be down but not out. As Paul says, we're hard-pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Judas is sadly there as a negative example for us. Don't be like Judas. Don't give up. Don't turn your back on Jesus like Judas did. May that not be true of us. True faith perseveres. So that's the first sort of theme, the contrast between uh, true and spurious faith. But there's, secondly, there's a contrast between worldly and godly sorrow. Worldly and godly sorrow. Uh, Paul talks about two different responses to our sin in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So I'm not going to explain what's going on in, in Corinthians, but uh, just to pick, really pick up on that contrast, on the idea. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. What does, it, what does the Bible mean? Well, worldly sorrow uh, ultimately is, is a selfish kind of sorrow it, it really only cares about the personal cost of sin what what sin does uh, to ourselves whereas godly sorrow cares about how god feels uh, and about its impact on other people so a worldly sorrow is characterized by feelings of remorse and regret it grieves its losses it bemoans its unfair treatment it demands justice but there's no brokenness and it results in self-pity and despair. Godly sorrow is characterized by a recognition that all sin is against God, firstly, but that it also hurts other people. And it seeks forgiveness because it wants fellowship with God to be restored. It understands that Jesus has paid for all our sin with his blood. Godly sorrow leads to a change of heart that uh, results in us now hating the sin. And by faith it receives forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. And I think that's a helpful distinction to apply to Peter and Judas. See, if Peter showed a godly sorrow that led to repentance, then Judas exhibits a worldly sorrow. That leads to death. In fact, the, the word used of uh, Judas uh, is not even the word the New Testament normally uses for repentance. And it's translated as remorse in verse 3. 
No doubt he felt remorse uh, at his actions. He even acknowledged his sin. But we, we all do that when we feel uh, remorse. Uh, we all feel remorse when we do something that we regret, should I say. And we wish things could have been different. I wish I hadn't done that thing. Uh, I wish I could go back and uh, undo it. But instead of turning to the Lord for mercy and grace, Judas sees only despair and he takes his life. But Peter felt great agony too, didn't he? He wept bitterly. But that itself doesn't tell us if it was worldly or godly sorrow. We can't measure it simply by intensity of emotion. It's what happens afterwards that reveals the true state of the heart. What does Judas do? He goes and hangs himself. What does Peter do? When's the next time that Peter is mentioned? Well, it's Sunday morning. And he's with the brothers. See, he's gone back to be with the other disciples. He hasn't cut himself off which is what we want to do when we feel self-pity. And when the women uh, come and report that the tomb is empty, he runs. He runs to see if Jesus is alive. He runs to Jesus. He's hoping that fellowship might be restored. If only Judas had stayed around long enough. Peter sinned with his words when... He was put under pressure in the moment. But there was a way back for him. Judas had sinned in premeditated action. And then he came to wish he could undo it. But there was no true repentance. But I want to make it very clear this morning that all failure is forgivable. And we mustn't think that Judas committed the unforgivable sin. He was not beyond the reach of God's love. The same mercy that reached down to Peter and restored him could have done the same for Judas had he sought it. Perhaps he'd never understood it. Perhaps he wondered how, how he could possibly be forgiven after such a ghastly deed and how many convinced themselves, oh, God would never forgive me, not after the terrible things I've done. But we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the man who forgave the very people who crucified him. On the cross, cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The sin of Judas was awful, but no sin is so awful. It places us beyond the scope of God's love. What mercy, what grace. What Judas did was forgivable, but he did not seek forgiveness. Therefore, his sin remained unforgiven. And that's the tragedy. But what do we, so what do we do with our sin? Some people deny it, refuse to accept the Bible's verdict that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some deny it. Some practice uh, penance. It's so what happens in the Catholic Church after someone confesses their sins. The priest announces some kind of penance. 
We'll say, here are some good deeds that you must now do to counterbalance the bad deeds. Basically, it's a form of self-atonement, kind of um, achieving our own salvation. And that's why the Protestant reformers rejected it as unbiblical. Um, remember the scene from Saving Private Ryan, uh, if you've seen that film, at the end when uh, Tom Hanks is dying on the bridge and his uh, last words to the man that he saved are, earn it, earn it, live a life worthy of the sacrifice I've made for you. When Jesus was on the cross, he didn't cry out, earn it, earn it. He said, it is finished, didn't he? So evangelicals reject penance in favor of confession, and rightly so. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. But confession um, on its own doesn't go far enough. Saying, I have sinned, is a start. Receiving forgiveness is the next step. But then we need to go on to repentance. Repentance is the change that follows so that we do not just go on repeating the same destructive cycle repentance means to turn around 180 degrees that's what it means literally to turn around and I think there's when we're thinking about what Jesus did on the cross I think there's a really helpful distinction that we need to to keep in mind because we, we want to say Jesus has dealt with the penalty of sin on the cross once and for all. The penalty of sin uh, has been removed forever. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And we can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's already been dealt with. I have nothing to fear on judgment day. The penalty has been paid by Jesus. That's the penalty of sin. But what about the power of sin? The power of sin um, in my life. That, that is an ongoing daily struggle. God doesn't take away the, the desire to sin straight away. There's an ongoing struggle. And that's why repentance is necessary. True repentance is expressed in visible, tangible, and practical life change. It's a process described as putting off and putting on. We put off the old ways, take off the old clothes, and we put on the new. And that's a daily uh, battle that we're all involved in. Because sin will take no prisoners. It's out to destroy us. We kill it or we are killed by it. And repentance is the means of putting sin to death and being transformed into Christ's likeness. That's the path that Peter took, and that's the one that we need to follow too. So just to sum up as we draw to a, a close, a few final thoughts about Judas. I think one of the real tragedies is that his role was probably unnecessary. Um, 
just reflecting about this, Jesus was going to hand himself over. Whatever. Uh, he was going to go to the cross. Uh, he wasn't hiding away. Uh, and in John's gospel, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Jesus steps out and says, who are you looking for? It's me. I'm Jesus. I'm the one you want. And then he has a dialogue with Judas. Do you still want to go through with this, Judas? You're going to betray your friend with a kiss? Judas still had a choice, even at that point. So why is Judas in hell? Well, it's not because he took his own life. Uh, suicide is sinful and irreversible, but it's not unforgivable. It's not the deed itself that condemns him. It's his lack of relationship with God. Nor, nor does Judas miss out because he betrayed Jesus. Yes, it was an evil deed, but he wasn't the only one to let Jesus down that night. Nor should we say that Judas was destined uh, for hell from the beginning. Judas was a free agent throughout his life. He made choices, and as long as he remained with Jesus, there was hope. But he gave up on Jesus. He turned his back. Perhaps he never surrendered his own agenda to Jesus. Over time, he hardened his heart and didn't pursue repentance. And when he went to the chief priests to confess his sin, it was the sorrow of regret. Instead of looking to Jesus and finding hope and forgiveness, he looked inward and found despair. But no one has to live with the misery of regret. Nothing puts us beyond the mercy of God. There is always a way back. And that should be it's a sobering message this morning, but ultimately it's got to be a message of hope. Do not give up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's have a